In the evolution of haymaking, producers would have started out with loose hay in stacks and then eventually hay into barns where it's protected and undercover. And then the invention of stationary balers would have come along where hay was manually forked into the baler and manually tied with a wire. From there, stationary balers gave way to mobile balers making small square bales that we're all familiar with. And then came a big round baler. And that big round baler took haymaking from a time-consuming, laborious job to a one-man operation. In 1971, a local farmer told Gary Vermeer the process of making hay had him on the verge of leaving the cattle business, and Gary started to design that one-person hay system, a baler that a single person could operate and one that opened a whole new level of productivity in the field. The introduction of the Vermeer baler in 1971 had a major influence on how hay and cattle producers harvested hay. This year, Vermeer is celebrating 50 years of the large round baler. I'm honored today to be joined by Mary Andringa, chairman of the board, former CEO and daughter of Gary Vermeer. Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your career at Vermeer? Well, thank you very much, John. I'm happy to tell you a little bit about uh, my background and my time at Vermeer. I grew up uh, in Pella, Iowa, and actually I was born exactly one year after my dad established the business in 1948. So I grew up actually around the business and, you know, hearing my dad talk about things, meeting some of the the customers early on. And uh, when I went to school, though, I went to college in Western Michigan and I went, I pursued a music education degree. So not really a business degree, but then after uh, my husband had gone through medical school and then a residency in Omaha and we were looking at where he would begin practice, one of my brothers said to me, you know, you might want to think about settling in central Iowa and then you might want to be involved in the in the business. He said, I really believe there are going to be more women involved in manufacturing in the future. And so we did end up deciding to move to Des Moines area, which is about 45 minutes from Pella. And I started my involvement in the business a few ways. I got involved in some research that was done on a couple of our products. I also started getting involved in some HR projects and then just got continually more and more involved until I actually um, served as an administrative VP and then a chief operating officer, co-CEO, then CEO, and now I'm chair of the board and moving into uh, chair emeritus at the end of 2020. So I've uh, seen a lot of change in the nearly 40 years that I was involved in the day-to-day operations of the business. And of course, uh, I'm very proud of my father who was the uh, quintessential inventor, but he also was somebody that had a great business mind. And I think it took the combination of those two things to really become a known entity in the forge world. Let's talk about that invention, the big round baler. Can you talk me through what the thought process that led to it? Maybe expand on the story of the neighbor? I'd be happy to talk about the story of the beginning of the baler. And I was actually in college at the time that this happened in the, you know, 1971, 1972. But I heard a lot of the stories directly from my dad, and I heard him retell the story several times. He and my mom loved to go do driving trips. And I remember him talking about the fact that he noticed there were, there was a lot of forge um, work being done in the middle of the United States. He could tell that there was just a lot of 
labor involved in that. And then I think when his very good friend, who he often did early morning walks with on a Sunday morning before church, said to him, you know, Gary, I think I'm going to get out of my cow-calf business. And my dad said, why would you do that? Because my dad always thought people ought to have some some worthwhile things to do in their life. His friend said, well, it's just too much work to put the hay up, Gary. I can't get the young people to come and help me bale hay several times during the summer, but it's not a full-time job. So I think it was a combination of my dad's driving through the you know, the Midwest and seeing a lot of forage um, fields. And then also his friend that definitely sparked his ideas. And the next day on a Monday morning, he went to his, what he called his engineering group. And at that time, it was involved with a number of people who were very talented and mechanically in mind, but actually no degreed engineers. And he said to one of the guys that he had huge respect for and was a very um, intuitive inventor. He said to Arnie, I think we need to figure out how to roll hay so that we have a round bale and it weighs about a ton and it can stay out in the field and shed water so it can be a easier way to harvest and then be able to feed hay. It could be a one-person system. And so over the next days, they figured out drawing a model on the floor, cement floor with chalk, about the size of a frame that they would need to be able to have a roll of hay that would weigh about a ton. Why why the ton, I'm not sure, but but I've always I always heard that from my dad. And then over the next few weeks, they cut the parts, they they assembled a, a prototype, and in mid-February, this was like in January when the conversation happened, in mid-February, they had a prototype, and so they actually went and spread out hay bales on a field so that they had a windrow. They started experimenting, and uh, I remember my dad saying that they were able to bale a small round bale. And then something happened with, with the prototype. But he said, we, we knew we had something. And, of course, there's lots of great stories about uh, all the trials and errors. And it's, it's truly one of those American invention stories because they had a hard time getting the bale to get started inside the chamber. So they threw a fence post in it that had been laying nearby in the field. And then the hay caught onto the fence post. And so they they had a way to start the bale. And so my dad said that, you know, the the next, through the winter, after they had baled all these bales with a fence post getting it started, he said it was, you know, pretty interesting to look at the feedlots and see all these fence posts laying around after the cows had eaten the hay, <laughs> hay that had been built around it. <laughs> and um, and my dad even went to one of the purchasing people and said, you know, I don't think the fence post is a very good idea long term. I wonder if you could get some really strong, um, almost a cardboard roll. And so one of the purchasing people actually set about trying to find a substitute for the fence post. But by the time those came in, the cardboard rolls, they had figured out how to start the bail using a, a finger technique. So just some of the early, you know, the early stories, I guess another thing was in 1971, then this was in the summer of of 71, my dad was a big believer that you needed to go demonstrate 
new products to people to see if there was really a need and a desire to continue, you know, the design process of a new product. He had done this with a stump cutter back in the late 50s. Um, a person came in with an idea about how to try to grind stumps out of the field, really so the field could be put into, you know, productive use and, and be farmed. So it was a farmer who came to him. The company started sending demonstrators out with a pickup and pulling a stump grinder behind it. And they literally just went and set up demonstrations and then took orders for these stump grinders. So he was sort of doing the same thing in 1971 with the hay baler and said, you know, we need to go demonstrate this and see if there's interest in it. And so they actually set up demonstrations in several um, county seats in southern Iowa um, and I think it was June, July, and, or around hay time, obviously, they um, put an ad in the paper that they were going to demonstrate a one-person hay system in somebody's field. And my dad said, you know, he had, had done a lot of demonstrations in his lifetime because he had started the company back in 48. He had really built a line of uh, trenching equipment, and then we had the stump grinders, and then we had a tree spade. All those things had happened before the hay baler. And uh, he said, whenever I had a demonstration, if you got 10 people at a demonstration, boy, you thought you really had a good demonstration. But he said, with this hay baler, we would have a hundred people or more. He said the cars would be lined up uh, along the you know farm roads for miles because he said people just wanted to see if there was really a better way to put up hay. And one of the stories he loved telling was that after a couple of days, he thought he saw some of the same people at the demonstration that he'd seen two two days before. And he asked them, well, why, why are you here again? I think you were at Osceola a couple of days ago. And he, they said to him, well, we wanted to see if it could really work two or three days in a row. So that was one of my dad's favorite stories. Uh, and of course, it did work two or three and more days in a row. And that's really how, that's really how it got started. So they knew they had a product to fill needs out there in the marketplace. How did you start distributing the product? How did dealers come into the equation? Yeah, from what I understand, and I have talked to quite a few of the very early um, buyers of round hay balers, and then many of them became dealers. As I understand it, in 1972 was kind of the year when, when the dealership idea really started. They would put, again, ads in papers or even a coupon to go to a demonstration. These would be, these started out, I think, around, you know, around Iowa, around the Midwest. People would come to the demonstrations and if they were very interested in buying around Hay Baylor, literally they needed to put a deposit down, a $500 deposit, which for many of them, they thought, well, this is strange. We don't have to do this with anybody else. But that's, that's those $500 deposits is what actually ran the business, helped my dad and his team be able to buy the items that they needed, the, the vendor items and the steel to be able to produce the products. And the product at that time cost about $3,000, right around $3,000. But anyway, once uh, people had been to the demonstrations, many of them signed up to buy one. And then after actually they had signed up to buy one, um, one of the Vermeer team actually went to visit many of them and said, would you like to be a dealer? And um, 
as I understand it, there was some controversy between my dad and a couple of the other leadership team at the time because we already had an industrial dealer organization set up that had started happening already in the late 50s. And a couple of the other um, key leadership people felt that they should try to sell the Baylor through the industrial dealers. And my dad was quite adamant that he was very fearful that was not going to work because they were really dealing with different customers. And he liked the idea of the seed corn salesperson who uh, was a farmer selling to neighbor farmers. And so the original um, way of distribution was setting up what they called farm dealers. So it was a person who had bought a baler himself and his neighbors might be interested in in them. So then they would sell the balers through that farm dealer to the other neighbors. And that that went on for a while. So, yes. This is all sounding very familiar to me. Jim Jasmine in North Idaho was my grandpa's dealer, and I remember Jim and his dad. Uh, Jim's dad was probably 98 years old the last time he put up hay. But they were exactly what you're describing here. My family story is uh, very closely tied to all of this. I remember Jim had parts out of his shop at his house. And when we needed parts for the baler, that's where we went, was to Jim's house. Yes, and and that has been just absolutely characteristic of um, the farm dealers. And then as we, you know, changed and be, and went into a little bit more established dealerships, some of our original farm dealers are still only selling Vermeer forage equipment. We still have some original dealerships that are now in the second generation or maybe even the third generation. But um, eventually, you know, that changed a little bit. I would say that through the almost 50 years, one of the characteristics of our distribution channel has been that they're open 24 by 7 during the hay season. They, you know, they will have parts. Often it was a team, um, a couple who the the wife often was answering the phone and, and taking orders. Maybe her husband was out starting a baler up or, or helping a customer out in the field with an issue and would also, uh, she would often uh, run the parts uh, department as well. And I, I've had several of the early dealership people tell me that they would come home on a Sunday and someone would be waiting in their yard because they needed a part. You know, they, they never turned people down. Um, I do know that over the years, sometimes these dealers have separated their business location from where they live because otherwise they would absolutely, you know, have no peace at all. Our dealers have always, um, I think, gone way above what most dealers do to take care of their customers. Oh, what I remember with Jim and my grandpa was a friendship. And any time we had to go for parts, there was coffee involved in, in Jim's living room before we could get to the parts. Yes, and I've I've heard actually of some of the some of the early dealer wives will tell me that you know sometimes customers expected to come in for lunch too. Oh, <laughs> and for sure, and for sure, coffee and a cookie. Right. <laughs> What was one thing you remember that was very important to your father when it came to the business? My dad really believed that you needed to take care of the customer. And he was a pilot, and he lo- absolutely loved flying. He, he loved to be able to go fly parts, literally, to customers. And then he also had a helicopter uh, rating for a number of years. And there are times where, um, you know, if somebody had a baler down, particularly if they had a baler down, and it was a heyday, they were doing a demonstration, and they needed to get that baler up and running, he literally would fly the helicopter, land in the field, 
field and go help fix the baler. Uh, I had one of the early dealers who said he remembered when they were going to have a heyday and the baler had just broken down the afternoon before and he really needed a part. And here came the helicopter with someone in a suit and someone in an overhaul. The person with the overhaul got out and fixed the baler. And of course, the the dealer thought for sure the person in the suit was my dad. Well, my dad was the guy in the overhaul. <laughs> so um, literally uh, in our parts department, we've got a picture of my dad standing in front of his his plane, his Beechcraft Bonanza, uh, just to say, you know, we take parts and serviced our customer very seriously. And in the past, the early management team uh, that my dad had, all of them had pilot's license. And they all were known to put a part in the back of the plane and fly it somewhere if need be. So I think um, that attentiveness to customer needs was something that was really important to him. Another really important thing to him was listening to customers on on what the issues were, how they were getting along. And so um, another thing my dad was known to do is to get in his helicopter during hay season. And if he saw a yellow baler, because we were the only yellow one, he would literally sometimes land in the field and then talk to the operator and ask him if he was having any problems problems, how it was working, what we should think about changing, and um, often took someone maybe from the engineering department with him and then would say to that person, hey, go back and see if you can start working on that on that change or that issue right now. So it was that immediacy of always making improvements that was also very important to my dad. Because my dad was not an engineer by degree, but he was definitely had an engineering mind. You know, he was always thinking about how to improve products. He just asked a lot of questions when he would be around customers and he really listened to what they had to say. The attentiveness to customer needs, the immediate needs, which might be, um, you know, needing a part or a help with with an issue, but also the need for how to continually improve the product. 50 years later, it's not uncommon to see round bales pretty much everywhere. Can you talk about how that feels to drive out and about and see round balers everywhere? Yeah, I mean, I think for um, all of our family members, we are very proud uh, every time we see certainly Evermere product, but often in the fields we see round bales. And we know not all of them are ours. In fact, we're getting pretty good at telling which ones are probably ours and which ones maybe aren't. But the whole idea of a round baler, at least in the United States, started with Vermeer and started with my dad. And so it has been fun over the years to travel actually through Europe and Australia and to see round hay bales. A really fun thing for me in the last few years has been to see the introduction of a large round hay baler into China. We do have an operation in China, a a small manufacturing uh, entity and also a a dealer group. Several years ago, we were in a a joint relationship with the Laley Corporation and and building hay balers in Germany. And some of those hay balers, that's a fixed chamber baler, we brought over to China because it was uh, really able to adapt to pretty harsh conditions, you know, fields which were not very well maintained. Usually the hay was almost gathered by hand there. In fact, to do the demonstrations, sometimes they would gather the hay by hand and put it into a windrow. But we brought uh, one of those balers with Vermeer name on it to China several years ago. And the same thing happened as happened in 1971. People 
came out of the woodwork to see this thing work, including a lot of media stations. And so we were on a lot of TV stations with this hay baler, sold many hay balers, and now we're producing them in China. But it was pretty neat to see almost like the beginning of the hay baler in the United States to see that replicated in China. We've helped make the world go round. That's that's a really neat story. And the scope of hay never ceases to amaze me. Yes. And, and in China, of course, we are bailing all kinds of things, just like we are in the United States. But wheat straw, rice straw, um, corn stover, sugarcane, trash, you know, and we've been bailing sugarcane for many years also down in, in Brazil. So we know that our hay balers can really bail any kind of forage residue. And many times, mostly, it's used for feed. But in in many areas, like in China or like in Brazil or Central America, often the bales are used uh, for energy. So they're going to a cogen plant and, and then being ground up and used for making electricity. All right. You've mentioned the industrial side of things, the origins of the Vermeer Corporation, but you have this commitment to ag. Can you talk about that? Sure. One of the things uh, my dad was very adamant about, and, and we continue to to focus on it as well, is to really design and produce sort of unique, in in some cases, niche products. And our hay foraging forage equipment is definitely um, a, a more unique product. And we've, you know, been asked many times, why don't you get into the, the agricultural tractors, et cetera. But we've, we've always felt, let's try to be experts in the area that we know. And round hay balers and accessories is the area we know. And we do have a separate dealer organization organization for our round hay balers. And it's such a legacy part of our business. And now at 50 years, I mean, it's just a a, a business we want to stay in. So my dad was also very big on um, believing that it's important to have some diversity in your business. So yes, we have equipment for putting in telecom and water and electric electrical services. We also have equipment that is used in oil and gas and in mining. But there are ups and downs in all of these different areas. So having diversity in your product line is very important. And uh, we're very committed to the forage uh, business. In fact, I think on the agricultural side, we are one one of the few companies that's really not either been acquired or uh, merged with somebody. I mean, we're still Vermeer. We've been here in the forage business for, you know, for 50 years. So we uh, look forward to continuing to grow that business and be innovators in it and to really take care of our customers. One of the themes that I have with my podcast is transition planning and that legacy component of the family business. And your daughter, Mindy, has just assumed the role of directing manager for the forage department at Vermeer. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think your father and, and her grandfather would have ever imagined it to happen? Well, you mentioned transitions, and we've been very proactive on working on good transitions in the family business and in also trying to involve family members in the business in various ways. We've got family members who are on our ownership council, who are sitting on our charitable foundation board. And yes, we have a couple who are involved in the day-to-day business. And I think my dad would be extremely proud of all of his grandchildren who are involved at any level. Um, our son, Jason, is the CEO of, of the business, and Mindy has now just assumed this managing director position. I think my dad would be just extremely 
pleased. He wanted to see us involved in the business if we were interested and, you know, willing to put in the time and the effort. And I know he would feel the same about his grandchildren, but he would be he would be very pleased to have them in the business. He really enjoyed watching Mindy uh, play basketball. She was a, a great athlete and played high school and college uh, basketball. And my dad really loved watching her play. And he would often talk to her afterwards and say, now, did you know, how did you know to do this? And how did you know to do that? Because she was the point guard in most cases. So she kind of ran the floor. And he was very interested in that. And I know that if, if he was still around now, he'd come by her office and say, now, Mindy, what did you think? about this or how do how how will you do this i i think he would absolutely love it he loved the Forge customers and the dealer group, uh, he felt very close to them. He felt very aligned to them. It was actually always his kind of his special love is the Forge group, probably more so than a lot of the industrial product groups and uh, customers. He just knew the Forge business so so much better. And so he would be delighted to have his granddaughter running the Forge business with a lot of enthusiasm. He would just be very proud. If your father were here today... What would you say about some of the new innovations that you guys have, like the ZR5, for example? There's no doubt if my dad was around today, he would want to be in that ZR5 often. Right before he passed away, we had just brought out a new large horizontal grinder, and it it was very impressive to watch. And, And literally, he had my mom drive him to different places where it was being demonstrated. And so, you know, to have been part of the ZR5. He would absolutely love it. It's been fun. We've turned my parents' farm, the farm that I grew up on, which is right across from campus, the Vermeer campus with all of our manufacturing plants. We've turned it into something we call the Founders Farm. We had a lot of ZR5 demonstrations there over the past year. In fact, one was a virtual demonstration during the time of COVID. I just smiled when I saw the ZR5s working in the field right behind my parents' home because my dad would have gotten a chair and just sat and watched it all day long. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I do think maybe for your listeners, it's important today to know that Vermeer is very committed to the long-term future of the company and being able to support our customers. With so many changes in the marketplace today and companies selling or being acquired, I think it's good for your listeners to know that we are committed to the long-term and we're planning for the long-term. We're 70 two years old right now, uh, 73. We're looking way beyond 75 to, you know, what does it take to be a 100-year-old company or older? And so as a privately held company, we can really focus on how we can be better and stronger for the future. Um, Yes, we had an EF3 tornado hit us and destroyed two plants two years ago. We are just moving into a a brand new fantastic plant and it's making our whole campus better. And so we really are looking at the long term and how we can be better and stronger for the future. And um, I think that's important for customers to know that there's stability with the Vermeer company. Wonderful. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today to share your story. I've had such a great time talking to you. And if you're interested in learning more about the 50-year celebration at Vermeer, you can go to www.vermeerbalers.com. That's V-E-R-M-E-E-R-B-A-L-E-R-S.com. I do want to say a genuine thank you. Thanks so much.